Welcome to African Theological Scholarship Podcast, where scholars of African Christianity and theology discuss their research. Your host is Harvey Quiani, professor of African theology at Liverpool Hope University. Here's today's episode. Good evening, Pastor Dupe. Good evening, Doctor. How are you today? I'm doing all right. How are you? Very well, Dr. Kwani. Thanks for taking time to have a chat with me about your research. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Can we start by um, giving you a chance to introduce yourself? Thank you. Um, I qualified as an accountant and I worked for a good number of years, over 30 years. And um, in the year 2000 and uh, or thereabout, I felt really the urge to press on in ministry. I was already a bivocational minister in Nigeria, that is serving alongside other, another minister in a church. And so in the, when we came to the country, we came to, my family came to the country in 1998. And in 2005, I took the opportunity offered at, uh, by Regent's Park College for advanced diploma in uh, religious and theological and biblical studies. So I did a three years first time studies with them. All, my, all I wanted to know was just to understand the context in which I found myself better. I wanted to know what um, this community um, really was sharing and what the theological basis was. So that was a, an eye-opener for me. And I really appreciate all my lecturers at the Regent's Park College, University of uh, Oxford. But meanwhile, um, we planted a church, a family of three and um, other people, plant, we planted a church in Oxford in uh, 2002. And so the church was growing. The Lord has been helping us. By his grace, we have three assemblies now. And then in the course of time, just looking at the effectiveness of our mission um, within the context, most all of us are Africans, we have our own ideas and understanding of how we should preach, evangelize, and do mission. But looking at the context, vis-a-vis the results we were getting, um, I met with you by the grace of God, and which was not planned, but I believe it was all in God's plan. And you challenged the content of what we were doing and uh, vis-a-vis the community in which we found ourselves, just the context of relevance of methods, not the message, the relevance of methods. And um, you came over to the church, you helped us with some training for our teams that were involved in evangelism. And the skills began to drop and that is one thing to have a message, is one thing to have the seed, is another thing to have the ground, but there must be a, mar- a marriage between the two for effectiveness. And also in our content, not long after you introduced me to the pioneering studies at Church Mission Society, and I'm so grateful to God that not only was the introduction done, but there was space in my life to be able to take the plunge I did not think it was going to be easy because I was also into full-time work and ministry as well. But there was encouragement both from the college, the Church Mission Society, uh, and especially the pioneering team 
and I completed my master's um, in last year, which I'm forever grateful for. So I really appreciate God in that. As a, and currently I'm working as the managing chaplain at a prison. So I bless the name of the Lord for the various opportunities he's given me in the last decade. That's a journey. It's a journey. Thank <laughs> God for it. Just a bit about your family. Um, you, you, your husband is in Nigeria. Yes, I'm married um, to Alabode. Uh, he's, he's working in Nigeria. He went back. We all came here to the UK in 1998 with our three children. Uh, he's back in Nigeria, was serving the gov- one of the uh, state governments there and is currently working on his consultancy <clears throat> beat. And we have three children, grown up, I can't call them to their friends now. Uh, we have a Daniel Jew, he's married to Busola. They're all also in ministry. We have Wonola, um, who is in London, also in ministry. And we have Missy Lua, who has the marketplace ministry. And we're grateful to God for all of them. Tell us a bit about your research. You did a fascinating piece of research for your master's. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you just give us a bit of the context of, of the research and what you are really looking for? Thank you. Um, part of my journey in life was, is the fact that I'm a Chevney scholar. That is, I had a scholarship from the British Council. And in 1992, I came to the UK and uh, my um, focus then was in empowering women. And I will say in that studies, I was given a pair of gender lens just to evaluate the context of life, the content of life from the feminine perspective of the womanist perspective and the issue of politics, economics, social sciences, behavioral issues. And um, that affected the way I read the Bible and that I began to look for women role models, women pioneers in the Bible. And I must say that I'm really looking forward to meeting uh, Noah's wife. They are named Noah's wife. They are named Lot's wife. And uh, um, I realized that Jacob, the mother of Moses, she was not named until after the sixth chapter of the book of Exodus, in spite of the risk that she took. And so I am of the opinion that the Bible is not silent on the women's contribution. It isn't. It's just that the narrative needs to be broadened. That's from the biblical perspective. This genderless also helps me to look at the way the church is structured. And there's this, what we call the, um, the, the global perspective of theology and the influence of African theology in Europe and especially mission work. And currently we are talking about COVID-19 and I'll just give you that um, context or that dimension where we talk about frontliners. And when we talk about frontliners, we're looking at doctors, we're looking at the nurses, we're looking at healthcare workers doing a great job. But also there are hidden heroes, like the waste, the people that carry the waste, manage the waste, the people in the supermarkets, the prison workers, and just people that may not necessarily be frontliners, but their work cannot be hidden. Their contribution can be hidden. 
And I just feel, so, I know that without a doubt, women have always been hidden heroes when it comes to mission work, when it comes to pioneering, not because they are not contributing, but because the narratives are not gender balanced. And so I was looking to unveil and unmute some women who contributed to pioneering mission work in the UK in the last two decades. And so that was my context. I just wanted to find out if they were ever there at all, if there, were any, if there was any woman there who was busy doing what she feels called to, even at a time when women were not expected or not appreciated for taking the gauntlet. So that's the context of my um, research. And, and did you find any women? Well, th there are so many of them. I had a long list, but for the number of words and the time frame, I couldn't capture everyone. You know, Chimamanda um, Adichie, she talks about the danger of single story. When I began to look for these women, and names were just popping off. I just needed to ask people who have lived in the UK long enough. Oh, do you know any woman who pioneered a job, a, a, a ministry, a mission? And I had about 25 names given to me. And were all these women African, Nigerian? All these were Nigerian. Nigerian women. Women. There were a few that were non-Nigerians. There were two, I think, Ghanaians that were mentioned, but my focus was now on the Nigerian women contributors. It was, a, it was an intentional focus to... It was intentional because I'm Nigerian. Sometimes you can be lonely in the field and you want to find out who and who is doing it from your, your native. There is something about uh, native spirit. And so I really wanted to find out who they were and where they were. And so I've, I was able to narrow it down to five women uh, in order to be able to do a good job of their contributions. I also wanted to know their challenges. I didn't want, just want to know, oh, I did this, I did that. What were the challenges that they faced? What were the lessons they learned? And also what are their aspirations sure. going forward? So that was the context and the question that I was asking in the research. Okay. What, what was your research methodology? What, how did you get the data? I did some reading. I did some background reading. Apart from the initial uh, preliminary interview, asking for names of women, and then I began to read up on them just to be sure that they were within the context of what I was looking at. I mean, when I was looking for women pioneers, I was looking for a mixed bag. I was looking for those who were pioneering as women on their own and those that were working alongside their husbands. And also th th those were the two uh, groups I was looking for. And I'm, I'm glad I was able to find them. So I now needed to, I contacted them and asked if they wanted to participate in the research. And I'm grateful to God that all of them showed interest and so we had to do the necessary safeguarding, put necessary safeguarding measures in place 
I needed to organize the interviews, structure. I needed to define my questions. I started from, I think, 30 questions. And um, thank God for people like you and Dr. Cathy that said, no, Dukba, you're not going to do this in the time that you have. Uh, and, and so I was able to narrow it down to eight questions. It was difficult. Yes, but I think wisdom from those who have walked the, 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 the path before was very helpful. And so I wouldn't ask anyone to go on their own into research without having mentors and sponsors alongside. So I had my um, interview research questions that I, I, I wanted to make sure was generic so that they could speak. I didn't want to tell all their conversation. I wanted them to express themselves. And so we were, I was able to do that. Then we book scheduled the interviews. I was supposed to do a 45 minutes interview for with each one. But the very first interview I did took two hours, if not more, because we didn't stick to the interview questions. We did a lot of catching up and conversation. And after I did that, I thought, no, I'm not going to be able to complete my research if I was to continue this in this way. So I had to bring in some discipline and I explained to them that this would actually be an interview, not just just it. And so the next one took me one hour, 15 minutes, and the last three took me just about 45 minutes, 15 minutes. So it kept improving and um, uh, that was helpful. I've realized from the interviews that there was a need for us to connect with the next generation of female pioneers. And so I organized a focus group discussion between my five interviewees and five ladies of the next generation. And it was fascinating. The things that came up, the place where, although the older women want in their aspiration wanted to mentor, others to be able to do it right and not repeat their mistakes. The younger ones did not feel that the older ones were as welcoming. There was a gap, a disconnect. There is no bridge for us to be able to share knowledge. And one of the out outcome of our conversation was, can we have this more, uh, more often than we did? We haven't done it since then, but you could see the need that there is a need for passing on the button, not the mistakes, not the pain, but at least helping them to see the trees from the wood. And also us learning from them. Because from that focus group, I was able to use new um, social media system, which the younger ones introduced me to. They showed me some, some tricks of the trade. And I felt, oh, how we have to lean on one another in order to be more effectual in what we need to do. And so then I finished, I typed up my essay. I had um, a great input at review. I had to have, <laughs> have you reviewing, reading alongside, challenging my thoughts. And I must say that it did make a difference, the final output. I was really grateful. Thank you. Two things that I would like to go back to. Okay. The first one is you've said you you read up on on these women before mm -hmm. going for the sit down interviews. Yeah. What resources did you find that 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 you would read up on 
I think all of them had presence on the internet in what form, one form or the other. Their profiles were available on the internet. Two, oh no, three of them had written books before. So I was able to read the context of their books, not fully, but I was able to get Kindle edition of their books. And one was already producing magazines. She had been involved in producing magazines. And she had converted the magazines to Amazon um, facilities you could download on Amazon. So I was able to see the things that she had done, which was very helpful. Um, so I was able, and then I've I'd met one. I've been working with one of them closely over the years in ministry. So she was well known to me. I knew her passion. I was taking part in her women leadership program, women mentoring program. So I, I, I got to know them better. Then in my network, International Ministers Fellowship, which I currently preside over the UK, I have a lot of women in the network. So Pastor Dupe, you, you talk about five pioneering women, five Nigerian pioneering women in the ministry in London. Are you able to mention them at all? Yes, I'm able to. Okay, let's, um, let's, let's mention their names. Uh, okay. Pastor Lola Oyebade, yes. um, in London. Lola Oyebade. Mm-hmm. Um, Pastor Tony Jama, she's in Manchester. Okay. Pastor Eunice Alamu. Mm-hmm. Yes, there's Pastor Yemi, and then um, also Pastor Kemi. Yes. Did you know these women before the research? No, oh, I would say I knew Pastor Alamu, Pastor Eunice Alamu, and Pastor Tony Jama closely. Uh, because of the network I, I work with, um, International Ministers Fellowship, which I'm the current national president. But Pastor Lola Oyebade introduced me to Pastor Kemi and Pastor Yemi, as well as a few other women. Oh, wow. Okay. Yes, Pastor Lola is a very far front line pioneer in London. And her testimony is amazing. And for all of these women, I cannot underestimate the power of their testimonies and the work that God has done through them. Awesome. Thank God for that. Hallelujah. Um, so what did you read? What did you find? Uh, well, for Pastor um, Lola Oyebade, she's the founder or the leader of um, House on the Rock Ministry. And she's been in ministry, I believe, since 1993. This was before the Church of England was ready to even consider women into leadership. Um, she's a wife of a medical doctor, but her encounter with Christ, which time will not permit us to go through, just convinced her that she has to do the will of God. And so she gave herself wholly to it. And when the ministry was going to be started, she actually trained with, um, uh, what's it called? Kessington Temple. And Kessington Temple was being mentioned time and time by these women that Kensington Temple helped them to discover their gifts, helped them to develop their gifts and to deploy it 
even though they even though Kensington Temple was not ordaining women, it was commissioning women to serve. Uh, Pastor Kemi, in her own right, uh, it was the language gift. She she's a Nigerian, but she was educated in um, she, a linguist. She was a linguist, a French linguist. And uh, when the Lord gave Kensington Temple the burden to open to start ministering to the French community. She was placed by God in that place, both with the knowledge of God, the love of God, and then with the language advantage. And she pioneered the uh, French ministry, both in the UK, Europe, and Africa. And she did a great job for them. And so you, I, met, I found out and I read about them. I read about Pastor Yemi. She was a, um, a nurse in um, something Hamlet, Tower Hamlet. And when she came in, she was bold enough to say she wanted to start a staff fellowship. Even though she was initially persecuted, I use the word persecuted, she, the passion she had wouldn't allow her to go and the demonstration of God's power that followed her ministry. Even she said non-Christians were coming to her fellowship. So much so that when she left the Tower Hamlet managers to go to another place. The office where she was praying is still named Yemi's office because it was like a hub for Christian activity. And she was also the first uh, person to start um, Food Bank when she moved to the new borough. She just, wherever, the way she came across is that wherever she went, she could not but portray Jesus involved in social action in as much as mission. And so I just, I read about them, then I spoke to them. And I, I, like I said, on the internet, Pastor Yemi has a lot of um, resources on, in, on Amazon magazines that she used to write. She, she pitched a magazine at par with um, Ovation. Ovation is a high class Nigerian magazine for social people, people that want to know their hot topics of what's happening in social life. So she got the publishers of Ovation to publish a Christian magazine. And uh, she sponsored it, she paid it, uh, she paid for it. And um, she, she just influenced non-Christians by distributing these magazines free. And so she got more converts through that. So they had different enterprising models for evangelism. And, um, you know, they brought what was African with them into the mission field. The, the, their social action, uh, Pastor Lola had started a charity shop in a very big place, you know, um, at Bemans Day. And it, it was just unique. Actually, the church is there. I think she met one of the leaders of the churches there and they felt challenged by what she was doing but she was not going to be browbeaten by what was going on. So there's a lot that these women had to go through because at that time, had to be a man in front and a woman at the back. But by the grace of God, they found their voice, they found a place, and they were not mindful of some of the um, oppositions that they met. And then you have Pastor Tony Jama in Manchester. With her husband, they started a ministry in London. Good News Assembly, and they've just gone from strength to strength, pioneered a lot of work, 
uh, schoolwork for children, um, education, because she is trained as an engineer. And so they've done so much. And um, you have Pastor Toy, uh, Yuniza Lamu, also with her own husband, pioneered Hope Assembly uh, in, in London. And they were really focused on migrants, helping the, the migrants to really regularize their papers. And they saw because of their own personal experience, they, they felt they needed to help people ameliorate the issue of uh, solicitors that were abusing or taking advantage of migrants. And so they were supporting people on that side, but also giving them hope so that they could go through the pain of regularizing their papers without losing their faith. It, it very unique ministries for, from each of them. I really salute them. That makes me look forward to reading your book when it's published. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this book, we trust God for it. Uh, so, in a nutshell, what what key things came out of your research? What did you really find um, with these these five Nigerian women pioneers in London? Um, Thank what, you. Yes, I think the first thing for me was the need to rebalance the narratives to of who we are promoting because uh, my son will always tell me that, oh, appreciate media from the bias that they carry. And so my own position is that it's not as if women need to do more in order to be an equal player on the field. I believe there is the storytelling. We need to rebalance the storytelling. We need to tell the stories of women. Um, also, we need to identify the fact that women are also authentic human, they have authentic human experience. And so where the model for ministry has been very patriarchal, we need to allow the women in their own space, in their own voice to be heard. Uh, the uniqueness of women does, should not be trodden upon because there, is a, um, there are elements they bring into ministry that the male is not endowed with. And I'm not saying that we need to muzzle the men. No, but let both speak equally, give an equal playing field to everyone. And so therefore, when we talk about cross-cultural ministry, we must make sure that from now, the input of the global South includes the place of women, the part of women, the narratives must be balanced. And I was challenging Dr. Israel Olofijana about his book when he wrote about pioneers in, uh, in Nigeria. And I said, where are the women? Even the wives, where are they? And he said, yes, those are the sort of things we need to balance because it was one of those I spoke to because they have been here in the country uh, long ago. Point number three. Yes, the number th three thing is that um, when we look at women and we talk about giving women the voice, the gift of God and the callings of God is without repentance. We must also bring alongside the next generation. Intentionally, the next generation of both genders, they need to be brought into the mix early the place needs to be given to them. They have a lot to share with us. 
They have a lot to give to us and God has endowed them. And so whether it's in the music, in the prayer, in the evangelism, in the preaching of the word, we have to make sure that the cross-cultural input into global theology, global mission, does not neglect this next generation. Otherwise, we'll be repeating the errors of what we did with women. And so, a Christianity remains an incarnating and translatable faith. We're talking about the global South coming into the global West to make an impact. The reality is that maybe the emphasis had been on missionaries from the global South that came in and went back, came in and went back. But the women have in, in, interviewed, the women my research are, are people living here. And there were two tracks. There were those that came from Africa to live here. Maybe they wanted to stay for a short while and then for whatever reason, they've stayed longer and the God has helped them and used them in this country. But there are also people who were probably born here who have discovered that the love of God and cut their teeth in mission and are in, in, putting back into the, um, into the mix of uh, mission. We do need to have a conversation between the two. Their experiences are different, very different. For example, Pastor Tony was born here or raised there for most part of her life. Some of the nuances of the typical Nigerian missionary, she cannot understand. Where is this coming from? Some of the nuances of the male domination and um, the wanting to present themselves as the be-all and do-all, she's struggling with. Whereas someone who has come from that culture can understand, okay, this is culture, this is not Bible. And so that sort of conversation will be helpful for us to be able to put things into perspective. And that is the separation of culture from the gospel. And so that the, what we are passing is not culture bias, but is actually gen, uh, Bible focused. Uh, and because there is the, that element that I feel is not quite clear. So some work needs to be done in that. Um, I think the fifth thing is that African theology or maybe the Nigerian Pentecostal model of ministry has blurred the lines between the ordained and the lay ministers. The emphasis is on spiritual gifts. The emphasis is on the calling, not the hierarchy. And so I believe that the global West has a lot to learn in identifying people by their gifting and their calling, which can be sharpened by education rather than the other way around where people are looking at education and then identifying calling. 
This needs to be done at the grassroots. There, is the mo there must be a model of education that helps people, not because you want to be a pastor, not because you want to be a reverend, not because you want to be an evangelist, but because there is the love of God in your heart and you sense his calling. You just want to find out who you are, your place in the, in the mix. And so we need to have that. Um, you know, we've been talking about flattening the curve of COVID-19. need to flatten the curve of um, ministry, of, of ministerial training. We need to flatten the curve so that people can actually dare to reach out, dare to be who they are called to be. Because the Bible says Jesus gave gifts, apostles, evangelists, prophets, teachers, pastors. These gifts, they do not need a caller for them to be manifested. But many people that have the gifts are not being equipped to do the work because they think it's the gun and the, and the caller that makes the difference. And so African theology, especially the models of these women that I've seen, they started doing their work before they were recognized. Pastor Lola said no church will ordain her. I mean, the, the church that trained her and raised her, they wouldn't do the ordination. It had to be an independent ministry that gave her ordination and recognized the call of God upon her life. The first church did not stop her from serving they just will not give her the office. The same thing with um, Pastor Kemi, you realize that it's actually making more women to shy away from stepping into their role. I know Pastor Tony will say, oh, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a prophet, but she's more prophetic. In my interaction to, with her, she's, she, she, she has this sharp, sharp sensitivity of what the Spirit of God is saying, but she will not boldly call herself a prophet. And I think it's part of the bias and the baggage that we are still carrying. And God forbid it that we miss out on these giftings because of not flattening the curve. So we do need to flatten the curve. Um, there are a few other things that I learned, but I believe that um, those will help. You, you seem to be highlighting the, the challenges that these women um, have to face in order to carry out their ministry. Can, 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 can we highlight that? Uh, is there anything that you, you would want to highlight in the challenges that, that women face in, in their ministries? Yeah. I like, uh, the challenge is depending on the track they have taken. For a woman that has that is walking alongside her husband, and they're both pioneering, I think the greatest challenge is finding their own voice in that type of ministry. Because culturally, I mean, I had an example where someone who came to church came to see me and asked me for the pastor. And when I introduced myself as the pastor, she said to me, a woman should not be pastoring. It was very frank. Next service, I didn't see them. I didn't see him and his family. So I understood his message. I took a phone call from a lady. I think I was interviewed on 
one of the TV stations. And a lady called me and said, please, can I talk to the pastor? I said, pastor speaking. He said, are you the pastor? Can I talk to the pastor? I said, sorry, ma, you're talking to the pastor. And it was difficult for her to accept that. Even though she was not brash, she was not rude, but I could see her hesitation. And so that place where not just women, also men need to be able to be helped to understand that the gift of the, God's agenda is without gender or God has no gender in his agenda. <laughs> and so that we can take the gifts where God has put, uh, has put the, the gifts. So I think that's the first one. But I've, I would like to think that more women are overcoming that hurdle now. I'm just not sure if it is sustainable uh, because I think it's been more of a fight than the light. We need the light, not the fight. I don't believe we need to fight for this position. If the light shines, both male and female will embrace it and it will be for the benefit of all. The second um, challenge that I see is finance. Um, it's very expensive to run ministry and missions in the UK. Most of the women will not say to me that they have access to the funds that charities would have, big charities would have. And uh, so it's about how do they run efficiently and run economically. I mean, for some of them, rent is a big issue for them to have a place to, to, to use for ministry. And so those are, the, those are financial challenges that uh, some of the women have faced. I mean, Pastor Yemi, in running the magazine, she said she was spending close to 4,000 pounds for every edition. And it was all our own money that she was using. Although she said if by then she had given herself to go and learn some of the um, skills, producing a magazine, maybe it would have been cheaper, but she was fully dependent on professionals and she wanted a high quality work. And so it was very expensive for her to run on her own salary and to do the work of the Lord. But she has no regrets that she got it done. And so it's about also helping people to find funding sources for some of the projects that they believe the Lord has laid in their heart. So there is opportunity there for development. I think the, uh, the third thing I will probably identify as a, um, a challenge is balancing home, the home front and the ministry. Because I, I think all of them, no, but two, all of them but two, are also into full-time work, and to be able to be able to so juggle the balls, it could be telling on their health, it could be telling on their domestics as well. And so it's about building structures around themselves that will be that will support their vision, and so help them to deliver. So it's very demanding. I mean, back home, if we look at the Nigerian that we know, you have all sorts of support in helping you. But Pastor Toyin, she said their children were probably less than three years when they started when she started ministry with her husband. And managing that, raising three children 
within a newly married couple and having to balance that, she was in full-time work. And sometimes there'll be no one to sing. She'll be the one to come and sing her children playing instruments and just pulling the family together. Uh, that, that was something. And one of, I think one or two also talked about creating boundaries between family and ministry. Um, I, I, the fund was necessary. So there is not everything. The, the family is not fully absorbed into ministry because I think there was the opinion that children feel that they are dragged too early into something they don't fully understand. Just come and play the drums. You play the keyboard. And sometimes the children just revolt and say, look, this is not really my own choice. It's been forced on me. And so that was another issue that needed to, uh, to be re reviewed about how, how we get our family into it um, and ease them in so that they have a voice as well. They don't just feel it, it's a duty or a chore, but that it's also a calling. They feel that they are part of it. You are a pioneer in your own right, right? You have um, you. the church in Oxford, three assemblies at the moment, um, that many other things. You have raised up three children, grown up now, all of them in the ministry. Um, and so while we talk about the other five women that you explored, what has been the highlights of your of your own life, your own story in in in, in leading the church, in raising a family, and doing everything that you've done? Thank you. I identify with all my five women. I could see myself in them. I had to hold back to, to in sharing some of the experiences. I will say that I, I do very much identify with them with their challenges. But I think for me, I said to uh, a colleague at work, I don't know, maybe I choose to wear a mask when it comes to gender, because I went to a, a female secondary school, or a girl's school, and so we were, we were groomed to be everything. Uh, we, were, we, we really did, I didn't, I wasn't exposed to the tension of uh, male-female. If there's something to be done, whoever is available needs to get it done. So I don't even reason that this one is for a man, this is for a woman. I think that uh, I, sometimes it's not something that I've not, I've not imbibed it as much as I should. I just feel that if it needs to be done and someone is available, let them get it done. And um, the other aspect is the boundaries between family and ministry. Because sometimes you just open your door to everything and everyone, your conversations, you, we, we, we just not, I don't think it happens in other uh, denominations. I think it's typical uh, just in the, in the beat to just as um, being, you know, this daddy and mommy um, concept. And you just don't know conversation, what you can choose. Because I've had occasions where I'm preaching and I'm using my son as an example. And I get him and he tells him, mom, why did you do that? Mom, what was that about? 
And if one is not careful, they will not be themselves if they think that whatever they say to you is going to be used in your message. And so that's what I mean. And like say, oh, you need to draw the line. This is in the home. It's not as if it's bad, but in their mind, they don't want to have to sift what they are sharing with you because they think, oh, mom is going to use it during her message or something like that. And that's not right. It's not helpful for them. It's not healthy for them as well. But sometimes when I hear them use me also in their message, they come back up and I say, okay, I heard you too. So that is that. And cross-cultural ministry, I don't think we've seen the end of it. I think with everything that is going on in the world now, I don't know how, how the scale is going to tilt because the epic center of, um, of mission was happening first in Africa. I hope what is happening now will not affect us because um, I hope we are ready for the next wave of revival and who the players would be, uh, we pray the Holy Spirit will help us to see it. But we need to be strong for it. We all need to be strong for the next uh, wave of revival. And it's not going to be, it may not be church as usual. That's going to be, those are the thoughts that are going through my mind now, um, that when the lockdown is over and we all come together, there is a need for us to reappraise how we've always done ministry, the opportunities we've missed in reaching people uh, because we just have not been able to reach beyond the ethnic community that we belong to. And when I say ethnic, I don't just mean Nigeria, the African. So where are the others? How are we going to reach them? There is great food for thoughts uh, for me. I think it's a challenge that close to 16, uh, 18 years now, we cannot say we have broken the, 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 the barrier. What is it that is holding us back from reaching the communities, the indigenous communities where we find ourselves? I believe it's, some, it's food for thought. It's a big challenge for us. What has been the effect of um, theological education on your, on your ministry? What's been the impact of going through all these studies on, on the way you've, you've led your church, the way you've carried out the ministry? For me, um, apart from enriching my understanding of the scriptures uh, beyond oh, how I feel, but really understanding the roots and the context in which the Bible was written, the need for accountability within the ministry has been uppermost, maybe also with my accounting background, but the fact that ministry is beyond the individual. And so developing leaders who can, who can take, and, take the ministry and run with it so that there is a future for the church is very, uh, has been very, very impo important in that the people I've met in the theological sphere, uh, not they don't have ministry named after them. And so it's very important to recognize that I am an individual, this ministry must outlive me. And so 
I do not have my children serving in particular in my ministry. I don't believe in the ironic order of um, daddy, father, mother. No, that's not the model. I believe that there is the priesthood of all believers. And all believers for me include children. So by the grace of God in our ministry, our children, they are part of everything. Um, I think the next thing we need to do is to prepare them for leadership in their own right. I'm, I'm sure there are things they can do to support themselves. I believe that this is not outside of my training. It's just come alongside the need to make the ministry independent of you, of me, and not trying to be the face of the ministry. Uh, so what fountain it does must not have, it, we don't do flyers that has my face, my picture in front with my Bible. No, we, we just say what we want, what needs to be done and who, where they need to go. And so those are refining for me because where I'm coming from, when you do a flyer of an event, the face of the minister must be bigger than the content of what the people are coming to do. I think it's an error. Uh, so those are the sort of things. Uh, how you can be invisible without being lost in what God has called you to. I believe it's something that I've learned. Thank you. Okay. You opened up so many things on my mind. Do you have any key African thinkers, theologians, scholars that have shaped the way you think about your work, your ministry? Uh, could you name a few? Well, um, by the grace of God, I have uh, Dr. Cosmos Lechuku of the Charismatic Renewal Ministry. Um, God has used him, he's written the book, The Church of His Vision, and that book is a guide um, about how the, everything must be underguided by God's love and how God is no respecter of persons. It's just a textbook that I keep dipping into uh, the church of his mission, of his vision. Dr. Cosmos? Ilechuku. All right, Cosmos. Uh, it's of the Charismatic Renewal Ministries. It's the uh, evangelical arm of the Roman Catholic Church in Nigeria. They in have Nigeria? over five, yes, they have over 500 ministries globally. It's a blessing. It's a blessing. Um, Apostle George Akalono has been a mentor to me. He's written a lot of books in these aspects of, of mission about women in ministry, ministry in the marketplace, the next generation, prayer. And is, um, it gives the books are free on kingdombooksclub.com. His resources are free. He's a passionate teacher, and um, I'm grateful to God for his part in my life is the international president of uh, of the International Ministers Fellowship, which is a global mission. The, the name of the, the pastor himself? Apostle George Akalone. All right, George Akalone. Yes, please. And then by the grace of God, Dr. Israel Olofi Jano, Jano in the um, groundbreaking work that God has used him to do in the UK, as an, uh, a theologian from Nigeria. And yourself, not, though not from Nigeria, but you are my brother, 
um, Dr. Jorge Kuyani. I really thank God for you because of the way God uses you to just challenge the status quo and to just remove the blinkers from my eyes. And I, I cherish all our conversation uh, when we have opportunity to. And the doors that God has used you to open for me, even when I didn't know there were doors there. Thank you. And the women, I know you have not mentioned the woman in... in I have Dr. Kathy Ross, if you <laughs> allow me to bring her into the mix. I have her name down. Um, I'm glad Dr. Kathy Ross was my lecturer at um, Church Mission Society. A book, More Than Wives, when I got it, just made me to want to do my research on women more than ever before. And then I research on uh, missionary wives in um, New Zealand uh, without faces, something like that. Those two books just made me to think, look, if this is happening there, it's also happening in my own domain. And so I wanted to just corroborate what she had done before. There are other women, but Kathy does stand out for me in my theological leaning uh, because of our uh, inspire, inspiring desire for God as well. She's not just, she doesn't come across from the head. I can feel her heart and her prayers with me. She was praying for me throughout my research and I'm grateful that um, I met her as well on this journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're um, welcome. This is really helpful. I think it uh, it's a contribution that needs to be made. All right. Bye. Thank you very much.